Well, I just want to, to, something's been on my conscience and I've become aware of. I realize that as I greet you when you exit the, the church, that I could become typhoid Mary if someone infects me and it passes by through there. And so I've been, I even had a discussion with Lisa. I said, do, do I need to, to refrain from doing that, that type of thing? Uh, and I believe that I'm still supposed to be around to help greet you, uh, particularly at the end of the service. But I just want to make you conscious that if I don't shake your hand, um, that's the reason why. It's not that I don't want to give you a handshake of greeting. I just want to make sure that it, should I be sick or somebody else be sick that go through the line that I'm not passing it along. Uh, and through that, we have a lot of families right now that are ill. Uh, a lot of uh, families that have sickness, not just from COVID, but also from the flu and other things. So if you will, would you join me as we pray for them? Lord God, we thank you uh, that you are con sovereignly in control of all things. From the great vastness of the universe to the microcosms of the universe, Lord. You are sovereignly in control. Lord, you use sickness in times of our lives to draw us to you. You use, us, use it to show us our frailty, our weakness, so that we might depend upon you. And Lord, we do lift up our brothers and sisters who are ill right now to you. Pray, Lord, that, that you would strengthen them, that, Lord, you would comfort them during this time, and that, Lord, you would return them back to health so that they might return back to us, Lord, so that we might bless one another being in your presence. I pray also, Lord, that uh, you would work to heal our souls through your word this morning. I pray we would be receptive to hearing what your Holy Spirit would teach us. May you give us hearts, Lord, that have been plowed through so that the seeds of your word might sprout forth. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, I hate to begin a sermon this particular way, but it is necessary. I need to apologize for a blunder that I made two weeks ago when we were back in Matthew. Praise God that it wasn't over a doctrinal issue, but I did give you some wrong information in that sermon. Back then, as I was describing the five major divisions in the book of Matthew, I told you that each section began with an extended discourse by Jesus, and that was followed by a narrative of the types of things that Jesus did. Well, in my zeal to get into those last few verses of chapter 17, I got a little mixed up and I got the order wrong. Each section begins first with a narrative of what Jesus did and then concludes with a long teaching of Jesus. Now, I could have passed it off and said something like, I just wanted to see if you were paying attention, but disturbingly, no one called me out on it. So I'm just going to assume that you're being extra gracious with me since this wasn't a doctrinal matter and it was just my aging memory of an old man over here. We'll chalk it up to that. But of course, let people know the wrong way to go to the reception and you don't ever hear the end about it. <laughs> Thank you, Brother Steve, for the humility that you bring upon me. But the reason I bring this up is not just so that the Lord can humble me before you, but it matters because we enter into the extended teaching of the fourth section of Matthew. All of chapter 18 is one long lesson from Jesus given in a single moment. It's why I had Brother Jeff read the entire chapter to us this morning. That's not surprising as Jesus talks about what everyday life is like under kingdom authority. It answers questions like, how does one advance in status in the kingdom? How does God want us to relate to one another? How does he want us to deal with the personal sin between believers? What does church discipline look like? 
It's a perfect lesson for the modern church, and I look forward to working through this uh, as we proceed in the days ahead. Today, we're only going to be able to cover the first nine verses that deal with childlike faith and the seriousness of sin, and I'd like to examine it under just two headings this morning, Christian ambition and causing others to sin. Christian ambition and causing others to sin. Then I want to save just a little time for some modern-day applications towards the end there. This sermon of Jesus begins with an ambitious question. It seems the disciples grappled with a problem that all of us tend to struggle with, and that is comparing ourselves to one another. We're told at the beginning of the chapter that they had a question for Jesus. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, it's clear by the way that Jesus answers the question They were asking about themselves. They they weren't trying to decide or debate whether or not Abraham or Moses or David currently in heaven were the greater figures, kind of like how we might argue over who is the greatest baseball player of all time. It's Hank Aaron, by the way. No, they wanted to know how they could be the greatest. Since the chapter begins with the words, at that time, perhaps the other disciples were a little jealous that Jesus gave Peter a miraculous task in which he was able to pay his two drachma tax with the coin in a fish's mouth. Perhaps the others felt left out. But regardless of the present circumstances, this was a constant issue for the disciples. They were ambitious men. It's going to pop up again later in chapter 20 when two of the disciples will actually get their mother involved to solicit a promise from Jesus to make them the greatest. But we also need to remember the question also implies that that these men thought that heaven was real, that it was a kingdom, and that Jesus was capable of doing something about one's status in the kingdom. So we need to give them a little credit for that. But what is impressive is the Lord's answer. And he uses a live object lesson here. He calls before them a child. Now, I want to get into why he does this in just a moment, but I just love the fact that there were children around Jesus. Isn't that special? We're going to see it again in chapter 19 when he's outside of Capernaum, but but children were never a nuisance to our Lord. They were never a bother. We don't know how old this child was, but the Greek word implies that he was older than an infant. And based upon the pronoun, I would assume this child was male. But get this. This child is never dismissed during the entire discourse. He may have wandered off for all we know, but as far as Jesus was concerned, this boy was welcome to listen to him. It's one of the reasons that I welcome children in our worship service. So moms and dads, Your children are welcome here. They're welcome here. In fact, I I hope that all parents, that we would do our best to try to keep our, our children from becoming distractions to others during the worship service, but I want you to know, crying babies, children scribbling hard on their coloring books, or the way that they tend to shout more than sing when we do our hymns, they're welcome to me. I love it. They don't bother me a bit, and I'm just delighted that you want to have them here sitting under the gospel. Keep them coming. The song is true. Jesus loves the little children. But as he presents this child before these grown men, his answer to their question is shocking. Well, at least it is to me. Verse 3, and he said to them, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, that is not the answer I would have expected. 
If it was based upon my understanding of the world, I would have said, he who does the most acts of service is the greatest, or he who conquers the most foreign lands for the kingdom is the greatest, or he who attracts and converts the most people is the greatest. But Jesus doesn't say any of that. He says, unless you turn and become like a little child, you will not even enter into the kingdom. The word turn here is not the Greek word metanao, which normally means to repent. This word literally means to twist around or to turn around. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he predicts that Peter will disown him and what he must do afterwards. He tells Peter in Luke 22, verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So it is similar to repentance. It would mean that that Jesus is saying what they were thinking in terms of ambition, they are headed in the wrong direction. They needed to turn from that direction. They needed to become childlike. That's what gets you into the kingdom of heaven. Now, we're going to explore that a little more in just a second, but that is entry into the kingdom. His second instruction is about what one does when they are in the kingdom and they want to be the greatest. Verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You don't just enter the kingdom in a childlike manner. You remain in the kingdom in a childlike manner. Jesus will emphasize this again in the next chapter, Matthew chapter 19, verse 14. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. So clearly, he's talking about an attitude we are to have, not just the age of our bodies. So what does that mean? to be childlike in the kingdom. Since the New Testament stresses sanctification so much, it cannot mean remaining immature in our faith. But I can promise you that all the books that are in my office that are about Christian living are trying to convey what Jesus states here in this one sentence. Humble yourself like a child. Submit to the Father like a child who is loved by a parent. Because you don't make Jesus Lord and Savior. You don't make Jesus Lord and Savior. You recognize that he is already Lord and Savior. And you embrace that as his being the father figure above you. A humble child doesn't doesn't know everything, but is dependent upon the adult. That's what Jesus asks us to do, to admit that we are not God and that we need him. This sounds an awful lot like Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Most children want to be included, but they're not concerned about social status. A child who knows they are loved accepts that and receives it. A humble child is still amazed with a childlike wonder at the workings of the Lord, especially when it comes to the work of salvation. When, when Amelia was three years old. She loved the aquarium in Chattanooga. Her all-time favorite activity was to watch the otters playing in the water. You remember that, Amelia? I mean, she would love it. She would squeeze in among all the other children, and she'd press her little face to the glass, and she'd just cackle and laugh as they jumped in, and they swam about, and then they hopped up out of the water again. She was so enamored with these little creatures that we had to literally drag her away in order to see the other exhibits. And when we would try to go, she would say, see it again, see it again, see it again. And she'd wiggle her way back in front again, and she'd just laugh and laugh and laugh. 
Seriously, she would stay there for at least 15 minutes till we convinced her there were more things to see. And she would still say, see it again. And we knew she meant the otters. As a parent, watching that much joy was worth every penny of the price of admission. And here's the thing. The entire time that she watched those otters, she never once said, Daddy, how do they do that? Is there someone in the back winding them up and then throwing them back out into the water to do that? What, what do they feed them? How cold is the water that they're in? How many otters were they in the tank? None of those questions entered her mind. She just stood there in awe and wonder at these jumping and swimming creatures, and she just enjoyed them. When was the last time you sat in the presence of God and you didn't have to have all of your questions answered and you just enjoyed him? You just enjoyed him for who he is, for what he's done in your life. But it's not just childlike wonder. It's not just admitting dependence. It's also recognizing that you belong to the Father. You are his child. He is the authority. You are not. Like a child, you yield to the Father and you say, hold me. What does a child do when they are fearful? They stand behind the legs of their parent, right? What does a child do when they've accomplished something? They, they rejoice before their parent. They say, Mama, look what I did. What does a child do when they're hurting? They crawl into the lap of their parents and they ball their eyes into their parents' chest. That is how God wants you to respond to him as your authority. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't say, well, unless you become like a soldier or unless you turn and you become like a slave or unless you turn and you get your act together. No, he says, turn and trust me like a child trusts their parent. What a savior. For sure, this truth communicates that the kingdom can be given to you like a present to a child, but it cannot be earned or merited. It must be accepted by faith. And this launches Jesus into the next part of the lesson of verse 5. It concerns these children of the kingdom. It is specific to what Jesus has been illustrating, not to all children all over the world, but he says, one such child or a child like this. Verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. This is language similar to Jesus' first commissioning of his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. This is Matthew chapter 10, verses 10, 40 through 42. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. To receive his children, and by that I mean other Christians, is to receive Christ. To receive his children is to receive Christ. As a Christian, one cannot get past the body language of Jesus. As 1 Corinthians 12 teaches, we are each members of the body of Christ. When Jesus sent out his disciples with the message of the coming kingdom, that if those that heard received their message, they not only received him, but they also received the Father who sent him. 
He also says that, that those who do good receive a righteous reward. Here he's saying if they receive one of these children of the kingdom in the name of Jesus, they are also receiving him. Now this is significant. Within this context, in, in that we, we receive someone into the church based upon their faith, we are to receive them as we would receive Jesus. They bear his name. They belong to him. They are loved by the Father as you are loved. You might be wondering, well, so what? Well, if you will, just turn in your Bible a few chapters over to Matthew chapter 25. This is found on page 831. Here Jesus illustrates the final judgment of those who will go into the kingdom of heaven and that those will go into condemnation. Verse 31 when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then they will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the kingdom, or king will say to, to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed him. Uh, welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Now the next words will indicate that these actions are not just done to mankind in general, but to children of the kingdom, the body of Christ, members of the church. Verse 40, and the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the, the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Brothers and sisters, we are to treat one another with the same love and affection we treat Jesus. If you have an issue with your brother or sister, go and be reconciled to them. If you see a sister hurting, you go and you comfort her. If you see a brother in need, you go and assist him. You don't just stop loving them because you are loving Christ. Knowing this, how should you treat one another when you get to cake group? How should you treat one another when you have a problem with the other person? Or when you see them doing something that will harm their relationship with Christ? What about Christians who are being persecuted? How should you view them knowing that you pray for them as you would Christ? What about missionaries or church planters? Do you view them in the same way that you view Christ? But Jesus doesn't just say that we're accountable to receiving them, back to Matthew chapter 18, but we're also accountable to causing them to sin. Verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. Now, Jesus is alluding to grave consequences in the eyes of God. He is not saying that sin cannot be forgiven, but he is adding gravitas to one believer causing another believer to stumble. Because if we receive them as though we are receiving Christ, and then we sin against them, who are we offending? Not just them, but the Lord Jesus. 
We should want the very best for our brother and sister in Christ. We should seek their sanctification. Paul talks about this in his first letter to the Corinthians when he addresses eating food that sacrificed to idols. For some, that was a violation of their conscience. And to force them to eat that food was causing them to sin. And listen to Paul's words here. This is 1 Corinthians 8, 12. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. He doesn't say you sin against them, but you sin against Christ because they are the body of Christ. We must never do that. I cannot tell you the fear that comes over me when I think of all the false preachers in the land who lead our brothers and sisters astray to put their dependence upon anything else other than Jesus. It makes me tremble to think if I ever lead you astray from this pulpit. I don't just sin against you, I sin against God. So this leads into further discourse here regarding temptation to sin. It's, it's one thing for it to come from the world. After all, we're immersed in a sin-saturated world. I expect television and, and the internet and non-believing friends to be a temptation because they're not uh, of Christ's world. They're of this world that's so filled with sin is under judgment and will pass away. But I don't expect my brothers and sisters in Christ to tempt me to sin. I expect them to encourage me towards godliness. And Jesus says the same here, verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come. How else will our faith be tested and approved by God? But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And Jesus uses the same language that he used on the Sermon on the Mount and what you must do to deal with such temptation. Verse 8, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Sin is so serious that you do everything you can to eliminate it. Now, we already looked at this during the Sermon on the Mount. Body mutilation was against the law. Therefore, it is a sin. Jesus would never tell us to sin, but he is using hyperbole here to teach us about the seriousness of sin and how it must be radically dealt with in our lives. If you don't, you are being part of the problem of temptation, not the solution. So very briefly, before our application, let's just recap what Jesus has taught with these first nine verses of chapter 18. I left a place on your outline for you to be able to, to write these down. First, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, one must become childlike. In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, one must become childlike. Second, to become great in the kingdom, one must continue to humbly be childlike. One must continue to be humbly childlike. Third, these children of the kingdom should welcome and receive one another as though they are receiving Jesus himself. These children of the kingdom should welcome and receive one another as though they are receiving Jesus himself. And fourth, these children are responsible to one another to not cause each other to sin against God. They're responsible to one another to not sin against God. 
Now, I'd ask you to keep all four observations in mind as we proceed through chapter 18 in the coming weeks, Lord willing, because they are important, especially going to help you make sense of the next uh, illustration Jesus uses about the lost sheep. But from these observations, I take away three application questions. The first question that I'm concerned about is, am I consciously aware of the seriousness of sin? Am I consciously aware of the seriousness of sin? Because it is. It is so severe that leading someone into sin is compared to tying a millstone around your neck and being dropped into the ocean. Have you ever seen a millstone? It was a huge chiseled stone disc used to grind grain, right? And the common one ranged from two to seven feet in diameter, and they normally weighed between 1,000 and 3,000 pounds. If you're sunk in the sea with, with one of these around you, you're not coming back up. Jesus says here that sin is so heinous that it causes one to enter hell. It causes one to enter hell. His words, by the way, not mine. This is coming from the gentle and lowly Jesus who is warning us. That is the consequence of sinning against God. Jesus says hell is so bad that it's better to lose an offending appendage to avoid going there. Sin is that drastic in our lives. It's that damaging. It corrupts a person from the original design of what God created, and it stains us forever. But if you really want to know how serious sin is, you merely need to consider what God had to do to reconcile us for the sin against him. He had to send his only son, Jesus, into creation. And Jesus, the son of God, had to receive the full wrath of what we have committed for each and every one of our sins in our lifetime. That same sin which I deserve, the fires of hell, Jesus took that punishment in my place. That's how serious it is. It would have been required if I had spoken one lie, if I had told one dirty joke, if I had coveted someone else's life rather than the one that God gave me. Jesus had to go to hell in my place to endure the wrath of an offended God. That is how serious sin is. And yet, even in my advanced Christian life, I still have a tendency to treat it so casually. Like it's not a big deal. But it certainly matters, not only to the Father and to the Son, but also to my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Question two. Am I aware of the need of corporate discipleship? Am I aware of the need for corporate discipleship? Jesus seems to indicate that we do not live life alone. We are not lone rangers. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to receive one another and we are accountable to one another. Now, I need to point out, our biggest problem in the church with the sins that need to be corrected is usually not worldliness. It is self-righteousness. We have this tendency to think that we're saved by grace, and then to think that somehow we are to live without continued faith in Christ, that salvation is somehow still up to us. While I want to be more Christ-like, I'm not supposed to be Jesus, but constantly demonstrate my need and my dependence upon Jesus. Jesus is not glorified by your self-righteousness. 
He is glorified in your transformation by his righteousness. We need to be reminded of this. Because of the the Jewish religious setting of Jesus, he dealt way more with the self-righteousness of his fellow Jews than with the worldly sin that Paul dealt with in the Gentile world. The body of Christ is accountable to one another for this. And the rest of the chapter will tap into this idea of church member sanctification. And question three, have I lost the wonder of my God and the wonder of my salvation? Have I lost the wonder of my God and the wonder of my salvation? Am I more enamored with what this world says is important than being in awe of the Lord? When it comes to Christian ambition, am I more concerned about measuring up or or comparing myself to others or relishing in the joy or, or than I am about relishing in the joy that my sin has been paid for and that I stand in the righteousness of Christ? When was the last time that I considered the gift of the Holy Spirit and how it's operating in my life? When have I stood and wonder at the victory over sin, over, over a relationship that was once broken and is now reconciled, or a child coming to faith in Christ? Have I considered the awesome joy that awaits me in heaven because of what Jesus has done? Paul did. He did so often. He laid hold of the promises of God as he wrote to the Corinthians, but as it's written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So today, let's take a moment to consider the depth of our sin had not the Lord intervened. Then let's stand in awe of what Christ has done for us. Let us marvel at God's plan of salvation And let us become like little children. Let's say, see it again. See it again. And let us be amazed at his grace once more. And friend, if you're feeling lost, the place I most desire to see it again is in you. Will you humble yourself like a child and come to him and drop the pretense that you have it all together? See what he has done on your behalf and give yourself to him on this day. His saving grace is before you now. Will you come by faith and will you receive it? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, let us just stop for a moment. Let us just contemplate the salvation that has come through Jesus Christ. And let us become like children in viewing the most magnificent thing that we could possibly imagine and approach you with that same sense of awe, that same sense of joy, saying, yes, it is so beautiful, it is so magnificent, it is so wondrous that I will submit to that. I will make that my all in all. I will be excited about that. I will desire to live the rest of my life for that. Oh, Lord, grant us a picture of what Christ has done on our behalf. Let us marvel and be amazed at that, Lord. And, Lord, for the one who is just now seeing it, the one who is just now getting it, 
who is probably telling themselves after feeling so worthless, you love me, you love me, you love me. Oh, Lord, open them up. Let the floodgates come in and allow your love just to saturate them right now by the power of your Holy Spirit and tell them that you were welcome before me because of what my son has done on your behalf. Lord, transform their lives, the truth, and the beauty of your gospel. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.